Hugo Alfredo Talayax was an immigrant from Guatemala living in Queens, New York. I rather suspect that on the morning of April 18, 2010, he did not even dream that it would be the day that he died. As it turns out, Hugo left his place in Queens and was making his way down a city street when he came across a mugging that was happening. Some guy with a knife was trying to assault a lady. And so Ugo stepped into the mix to try to rescue the lady from that mugger. And in the process of that, a physical altercation ensued between Ugo and that assailant. By the time it was all said and done, the assailant ran off. So did the woman. And they left Ugo lying on the street to die with a stab wound. The story itself is bad enough. But the capture from business video cameras, surveillance cameras in the area, made the story a true tragedy. Because as police later began to check out those video surveillance cameras and the footage that they had of that particular incident and what happened after that, it was a horrifying picture. Because no less than 20 people walked by Ugo that day One was a man with a cell phone, and instead of using his cell phone to call for help, he snapped a few pictures of Ugo's body lying there in blood on the the ground and then went on about his business. Another man stopped long enough to bend over and shake Ugo to see if he was still conscious. When he saw that Ugo was lying in a pool of blood, the man turned and ran away. By the time... Someone did call the authorities. Ugo was long since dead. That story is one that should shock us. It's a true story as reported by ABC News and other media outlets. But the problem that we have with that is that we don't get shocked by that kind of story too much anymore because too often it just becomes part of the scenery of our lives. Jesus told a story not much different than that with great effect. If you'll turn with me today, we take another step in our series where we're studying the parables of Jesus, and today we go to Luke chapter 10. And in Luke chapter 10, we find the parable of the Good Samaritan. Now, I'm going to suggest to you that one of the great dangers we have in these studies, this particular series, is that we're looking at parables that for the most part are some of the most famous of Jesus' teachings. I suspect, I think I'm in good company with this because last night I happened to flip across the TV screen looking for different things. I found nothing really worth watching and I stumbled across Charles Stanley. And Charles Stanley started preaching on this particular parable last night. So I changed the channel. So if you listen to him, you can listen today. It's not the same sermon. I'm pretty confident. But what I, in in about 30 seconds that I listened to him, he made a comment that I was planning on making. And that is this. When we come to a parable or a passage of scripture that is so well known as this one, We're in danger of missing the truths it holds. 
We get so familiar with the story that we often just kind of skate over the top of it and say, oh yeah, I know that one. Let's move on. And I'm going to suggest to you that this is the first of the parables of Jesus that we've looked at that includes two different slanted kind of truths that are offered here. And one of them may be one you've never heard before, is my guess. So let's read together. In Luke chapter 10, we begin reading in verse 25. And behold, a lawyer... Let me just stop for a minute. Already this morning, one of the attorneys in our church stopped me and said, I knew you would finally get to the lawyers. So let me just encourage you to stay tuned because we're going to really get to the clergy before this is over with either. So back to it, verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul, with all of your strength and with all of your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. By chance, a priest who was going down that road, uh, and when he, by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him, and he bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. So there are three main characters or groups of characters here. Each one of them provides the opportunity for us to find ourselves in the parable personally. So we begin with this religious crowd, the religious people. And before I go to explain some of the details that Jesus gives here, let me jump to an attempt at least to do some application before we even get to the explanation. Who would you say, and I don't want you to answer back out loud, but inside your head there, answer this question. Who would you say are the priests and the Levites of the story in this day and age? Now, many of us would probably fairly quickly, and this is the way I usually hear this preached or taught, Many of us would quickly jump to, well, those are the pastors, or those are maybe the seminary or the Bible college professors, and maybe we could just kind of generalize that and say that those are the clergy of our day. And I would suggest to you that that's at least the beginning of a good answer. But I would also suggest to you that it lets too many people off the hook. 
So let's summarily jump onto the hook together, shall we? From Jerusalem to Jericho, or vice versa, is about 15 miles long. And that 15-mile stretch, there is about a, most people tell us, that there's about a 3,300-foot elevation change. So this particular stretch of road, uh, when Teresa and I visited Israel and had that tour, we went on this road, or the modern equivalent of it, and it is a lot of, uh, it it is a great elevation change. Our bus struggled to make it up, and a lot of back and forth, you know, sharp corners and that kind of thing. Uh, And it's not much different today than it was back then. One of the other elements of this is that that particular road was... uh, was used by priests and Levites, those who worked at the temple in Jerusalem. By the time we get to first century Jewish life and Jesus is telling this particular parable, we know that there are so many Levites and priests who are assigned to duty in Jerusalem that Jerusalem couldn't handle all of them. And so many of them began to live in Jericho and make the commute to work. You thought yours was tough. You ought to walk 3,300 feet up just to get to work. There's another ring of authenticity to this that Jesus builds into his story, and that is that that road was quite dangerous. Now, when I first came to El Paso, uh, one of the landmarks that we knew because we had been doing a little bit of looking online and YouTubing El Paso and that kind of thing, but Cristo El Rey was one of those. And, and when I first got here, I made a comment to somebody said, I, I think I'm going to go make that trek up to Cristo El Rey. And the comment that I was given, anybody want to guess what it was? Uh, be careful. Actually, what they said was, don't go alone. Now, this particular road was much worse than what we could imagine it might be going to Cristo El Rey. This particular road was, was populated by these criminals, the criminal element, because of the hairpin turns and because of the elevation change. Forth, It was easy for them to hide, and then they would jump out and assault those people, those travelers on the road, and rob them. Jesus tells a story that at this particular point, everybody would have been going, oh, yeah, yeah, that's not even a story. That's just a real-life news headline from first-century Jerusalem life. But then Jesus makes a turn in this, and we'll get to the turn in just a few moments. Let me back up for a minute and just try to train our thoughts into this area for a moment. A lot of times as we tell this story, preachers that is, and teachers, we want to let the priest and the Levites off the hook a little bit. And the way we do that is we talk about, well, the reason, maybe the reason, probably the reason that they went to the other side of the road with this guy who's laying there having been beaten almost to death They do that because they're on their way to work at the temple, and if they go over and the guy happens to be dead and they touch him, then it disqualifies them from temple service, and they have to go through this ritual cleansing process before they can even go back and do their job. There's several problems with that. Here's the first one. Jesus doesn't tell the story that way. Matter of fact, if you read it that way, then it almost cuts the heart out of the story. The second thing is the text doesn't support that let them off of the hook. There's some language in here that we need to get. It says, and very literally it says, of this first one, excuse me, verse 31, now by chance a priest was 
going down the road. Now, we should not just kind of slough over that as if it's nothing. Most of the time in Scripture, people go up to Jerusalem. As we tell the story, they go up to Jerusalem. It's a literal going up because of this elevation change, but it's also one of those pictures of a spiritual process to go to the temple. Here, Jesus tells the story by chance. It literally means by chance. It's not, I'm going to work. That's an intentional trip. This is by chance. He just happened to be going down that road, and he's going down to Jericho. He's not going to work. The, the, the way we try to explain this away to benefit ourselves or these religious leaders just doesn't cut it. And so what we find then, hear me very carefully now, what we find here is a different kind of an assault on this man who's already been assaulted. This is an assault of the worst kind when those who are designed by God to represent God among God's people have a hands-off policy with people. This man has been assaulted by robbers, but the worst assault so far that we find here is the one where God's leaders say, I don't have time for you. Where God's priests and Levites say, you're dirty, I can't get dirty. This is a troubling part. They're likely that there would have been some of those in the crowd that Jesus had drawn for this little exchange with the lawyer. There would have been some who would have said, yeah, that sounds just like a priest or a preacher in our day. But as I said, I think we're all on the hook for this one, so let's talk about it. Who are the priests and the Levites of our day? Well, I would suggest that following the example of these men, that there are two different applications that we might make with this, and both of them are troubling, and both of them are very easy for us to slip into if we're not careful. Here's the first one. And that would be that the person who is a priest and the Levite of this story today likely may be the one who trades the function of Christianity for its form. These men, the priest and the Levite, represented the, the identified with God people of that day. They were the ones who went to the temple and did all of the stuff, all of the ritual that came, all of the cultus of what you do in a temple kind of a context. These guys embodied that. They were the ones who represented God before the people. And so in this case, for them to turn and walk away from that, they sacrificed their function for just a form of what they were supposed to do. They carried the title, they carried the tasks, but they lost the heart of God in dealing with this man. It is easy for us to fall into that particular category. Our function as Christians, if we go to the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said of Christians, he didn't say you should be, he said you are the salt of the earth, the light of the world. He gives us that function, our responsibility in this particular world in which we live in, in this corner of the world in which we live, is to be salt and light. That is our function. But we easily let the function go and hold on to the form 
of what we're supposed to do. Let me use myself as an example. It's easier for you if I use myself rather than somebody else, so let me just do that. My function as a pastor, by the way, if we polled this group as to what my function is, we'd get 4,000 answers probably. So let me just kind of boil it down to this. I believe that my function, among many things that I can do, my function is to represent Jesus Christ for this body and to help you live in such a way that you do too. Okay, now boil it down. That, that's, that's a working definition today. And if you follow me around on any given day, and if I'm doing my job, which I try to do, you will find that I have a lot of different things that fall underneath that function, underneath that umbrella. I may be counseling in part of one day. I may be sitting in on any number of different meetings, whether one-on-one or committee-wide. I may be studying to prepare sermons. I might be dealing with staff issues. I might be doing any number of things in my job as the pastor of First Baptist Church of El Paso. But I'm going to submit to you that it would be very easy for me to do all of those things every day and still sacrifice my function. The form of my job as a pastor requires a lot of different things, but the function requires that I walk with Jesus Christ and allow him to transform me every day. It is easy. If it's easy for me as a pastor, who some would say, well, we pay you to do that. If it's easy for me as a pastor, how much easier it would it be for you to trade out your function and just embrace the form of Christianity. Let me say it a different way. Here's the second application of this. I would say that priests and Levites of our day may well be those who elevate churchianity above Christianity. Did you catch that? I just made up another word. Actually, I don't think I made that up. Somebody else did a long time ago. But it might be the first time you've heard it. It is very easy for us to do like these two guys, the priest and the Levite, to elevate churchianity, to go through the motions of what church work is. Heard one pastor say it this way. Don't fall into the trap of doing church work because we're called to do the work of the church. The big difference between those two. It may well be that these two guys were wearing those clothing that day that would have marked them off to be a priest and a Levite. We don't know that. Jesus doesn't give that particular detail. When we walk out of this church today and go out into this community, how will people know if we are Christian or not? I had a conversation with my daughter-in-law a number of years ago, and uh, she now is, well, she has a different job now, but in those days she was trying to get through college, and so she was a waitress at a fairly upscale uh, restaurant in the Woodlands, Texas. 
And I asked her one day uh, about what waitressing life was like, and she said, you know, she said, myself and all the other wait staff and the kitchen staff hated to work on Sunday afternoon. I said, well, I think I understand that. She said, no, I don't think you do. I said, well, well, okay, so tell me why. She said it was the church people. I said, well, I get that. People coming out of church, and, you know, in Woodlands especially, there's a lot of churches in a small uh, area there. And she, she said, it's not, it's not that the people were there. She said, we had crowds all the time where I worked. She said, the problem was not the crowds. She said, here's why we hated to work on Sunday afternoon. It was because the Christians, when they would get out of church and come to eat at our establishment, they were the rudest of all of the customers all week long. Can you fathom that? How is it that we can go from being in church where we're coming feasibly at least to worship God and then walk out, as she said, and treat people like they were dirt? And the answer is, if we choose to live on the road from Jericho to Jerusalem, we're going to come across the opportunity to be churchians rather than Christians. Here's a good truth for us. Jesus did not hear me very carefully with both ears. If you're going to call me a heretic, at least quote me correctly. Jesus did not die for an institution or a system. Jesus died for people. That doesn't mean that we should play loose with the church. It does mean that we must honor him in the way we handle people. So there's the first group. I ask you to identify yourself. There's a second one. This is the Samaritan, and this is the one that we always give attention to, and so I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time here. But this is the first slant because Jesus throws this guy in here. By the way, this is the reason that I entitled my sermon The Good Terrorist. Because in first century Jewish life, for Jesus to tell this story and for a Samaritan of all people, a Samaritan to be the one to step in and provide care for this guy, that's unthinkable. Nobody would, it would be the same for us thinking about a a, a terrorist going along the road and seeing you laying there and instead of having his way to step in and provide the care and concern. It, It just boggles the mind for those people who heard Jesus say this, and even for us, I think. And of all people, he's the hero. We find this in verses 33 through 35. I'm not going to go back and read it now because of time, but you can go back and see that his, his expression of love for him was extravagant. It wasn't just a, boy, here's some water. I hope you get the feeling better. He, he, he interrupted his whole schedule, and it cost him money. And what drives that for him is this little divine word. It keeps cropping up when we study the life of Jesus. The word is compassion. It is a collective noun in Greek. It refers, I don't want to be crass or anything like that, but I just need to say it this way. It refers to an individual's collective internal organs. It is a divine word used only of Jesus or by Jesus in stories like this in the New Testament. 
It's a word that when it's used refers to that deep movement inside of somebody that will not allow them to let the situation stay the way it is. They must do something. And in every instance where it's used, that individual it's used of always does something and it always is done as an investment into somebody else, in particular the person who triggered the compassion. This Samaritan of all people sees what he sees in this man who has been beaten and abandoned by everything and everybody who has walked by him. And he says essentially this, I can't just walk away from that. And so he invests himself. He he gets involved and he invests himself and it sounds easy in our everyday life, but it's not. Because people are messy. People who you help sometimes begin to expect help. There's a thousand and one different reasons not to do it, but none of them can offset the reasons to get involved. The Samaritan. Are you the Samaritan today? Are you the Samaritan in this story? There's one other group I want us to see. It's actually not a group, it's just a person. This is the second slant. Maybe you're here today and you're the traveler. I find it interesting through the history of interpretation of this parable in the church, the guy who gets rolled doesn't really get a whole lot of attention in the story, I mean. Well, sure, we see his predicament, and we just kind of push him off as being, well, he's a necessary evil in this story for Jesus to make his point. But I would suggest to you that it may well be that he is the point of Jesus' story, at least one of them. This guy we've already established, Jesus did it well, that he was rejected. The religious crowd wouldn't help him. The guys who were thieves weren't interested in what was best for him. The Samaritan steps into his situation. Are you maybe today the traveler in this story? Manhandled by the world, taking hits left and right? Maybe you're Ugo Alfredo Taliax that I talked about as we started today, trying to do the right thing and yet being left laying on the side of life's road. I'm going to suggest to you that we need to go back and figure out why Jesus told this parable in the first place. Clearly, the Samaritan is the one that we're to emulate. That's verse 37. But if we go back to verse 25, and I'm going to read this again because I think it's critical for context in what Jesus is doing here. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? I'm going to tell you that if we need to make sure we get our timeline right here. Because if somebody asks us today, what must I do to inherit eternal life? We're going to take them back to the cross and back to the empty tomb. But the cross and the empty tomb have not happened when Jesus is telling this story. There's a timeline we need to follow. And in context, Jesus has asked this question. Of course, the, the, the lawyer's motives are not pure. He wants to put Jesus to the test. They're trying to hang Jesus. But the question is, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Is it not possible that maybe Jesus is answering two questions in this particular parable? 
Who is my neighbor, but also how do I get eternal life? And the answer, if you want eternal life, is you have to assume the position of the traveler. You cannot help yourself. He was totally at the mercy of other people. Religion failed him, but this person who had divine compassion for him stepped into his need and took him to a healthy place. All of us, each of us, is this traveler. Whether you want to admit it or not, I know that it's possible that some of us are here and we've been working our way through life and we've figuratively pulled ourselves up by our own bootstraps and we've made a life for ourselves. I like what one guy said, a self-made man is the best example in the world of poor workmanship. You can't do this by yourself. You can't. You can't inherit eternal life if you're depending on yourself. I think this traveler becomes one of those pieces of the picture of how we get to eternal life. And that is you have to come to the end of yourself. You can't do it. You need help. So let's go back to that Guatemalan immigrant lying on the, road, on the street in Queens, New York. I hope that you never come across a situation like that. But I'm going to suggest to you that spiritually you come across that scene every day. You come across the lives of people who are beyond help of their own. And they need someone to connect them with the love and the life of Jesus Christ. How will you respond? Will you be the religious crowd? Will you be the good Samaritan? Will you be salt and light? Let's pray. And as we pray, I'm going to invite you to personalize this message. Who are you? Which one in this story are you? If you are the traveler and you know that you need Jesus Christ and his life in your life today, why don't you take that step? Why don't you surrender and call it what it is and say, I can't get there by myself. I need help. And we will introduce you to Jesus Christ in a saving, life-transforming kind of way. If you don't know Jesus as your Savior, that's the first part of our invitation today. And we invite you to just step out and come down. Dr. Nick will be here. I'm here with love to share with you the life-changing love of Jesus Christ. Maybe you're here today and you want to join this church. You've been thinking about it. You've been praying through it. Maybe this is a good place for you to plug in and help us as we reach into this community to connect people with the love and the life of Jesus Christ. Maybe there's somebody in your life that you are envisioning right now who's been beaten up by life and abandoned by people. God's put that face in your mind right now as a reminder to you that you're called to connect them with the love of Jesus Christ, the compassion that he has. Whatever decision that God has for you today, now's the time to make it. And so, Father, we pray that you would help us to have courage and strength to make the decisions that you place before us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing. You come.